So Jonah, one of the joys of being on podcasting is that you can work virtually very well. We can be working remotely. You and I have never met in real life over the last 10 years or so of running around the same ecosystem, which leads to the question of remote work. If you and I are probably okay with remote working, but I think for many companies, many corporations, many entities, remote work doesn't work. And of course, there's a whole bunch of questions you can ask between remote work doesn't work or hybrid work doesn't work or does work. That's our topic for today. Where do you want to kick it off? I'd like to start with a little personal history. Back in the 19, early 1990s, I was one of the very first remote workers for McGraw-Hill. It was so early on that we had not worked, hammered out all the details like, should McGraw-Hill provide me with a computer? No, they didn't. I went out and bought my own computer and I was running OS2 on it, which a couple of years later I was told was no, not part of the company standard. But basically, since the early 1990s, I have been partially or totally working from home mm. and leading teams that were partially or totally working from home. So I have a little bit of experience in this area, and I find it actually super entertaining to watch all the so-called experts pontificate about where work is headed. I think that's, that's an interesting question to ask is, are the experts actually experienced in hybrid work? Are they used to being remote from customers. So, so many consultants and analysts that I've worked for and with used to demand that I be on site and I would be the force to commute hours and hours. And I'd go like, why am I even here? Because all I would do is then find a desk and then pull a computer out and start typing on the computer for eight hours a day and then drive home. I do wonder how many of our so-called experts, do they have a basis on which to expound about hybrid work? and working remotely, like working through a screen instead of working face-to-face? -face. And that's a good question. People should always be asking themselves, what is it about this person's point of view that is based in some sort of experience or uh, research, or can they give you data saying that this point of view is supported? Or is it just some clown head on a LinkedIn blog post going, I don't like remote work, I've never done it and I'm never gonna do it. I'm going to answer, unpack that a little bit. Since we're here at Heavy Strategy, where the questions are more interesting than the answers, I think one of the big questions is, what is this person's basis for pontificating on topic X? And when it comes to work from home, I think, given all the transitions that have happened, that's particularly important here. As a consultant and analyst, uh, I actually think the consultants and analysts are possibly a little closer to the right answer here, if there is a right answer. What I was thinking about when I was thinking about the experts is somebody sent me one of those emails saying, come listen to this panel of experts discuss the future of work. And I'm clicking through to see what these experts are. And they're all academics. And I'm like, not only do these people not actually understand the future of work and remote work because academia has been famously resistant to it, they're academics. Their idea of work is very different from 99% of the rest of the world. So thing one that I would raise is question the credentials of anyone because you also raised the question of data. And since I'm about to spout a bunch of data at you in, in, in a second or two, sure. I just want to caution the limits of data because right now we're talking about a reinvention of work and a reinvention of society because work is such a big part of society. And no amount of data is going to be accurate because backwards looking data does not predict the future. The example I always use, and it's a stupid one, but it's a very real one, is Coca-Cola did not go out and survey 800,000 people to determine if there was a need for caffeinated sugary drink. Mm. Because if they had, 99% would have said, no, nah, I'm good. I have coffee, I have water, I don't need this thing. Co if Coke had done that and had listened to that, they 
wouldn't have created what they created. So, so the idea that data can actually help us understand the future has its limitations. And I say this as a data practitioner. I think the thing that we should probably discuss is if you're reading an article from somebody who says remote work won't work or the questioning the value of hybrid work and the need for face-to-face, -face, what are some of the signs that you think might be there. So the first one I'll talk about is people who talk about synchronous communication. So synchronous communication is one-to-one -one communication on a telephone or on a video conference because those require you to stop at a point in time and you must give 100% of your focus to the person that's in front of you. You don't get time for reflection or consideration or to do preparation or research. This has been the value of email over the last 30 years is that Someone can send you a request. You can deal with it when the time is available. You don't have to drop what you're doing. You can consider a response and then reply. And that's an asynchronous reply. You're not responding at the same time. I think anybody who talks about hybrid work and says, oh, video conferencing is the answer is instantly suspect because it is part of the answer, but it is not the answer. Yes, there is still a need for some face-to-face -face communication or one-to-one -one or one-to-group, like a small group. But there's not a need. It can't only be that. It has to be some form of a synchronous communication. Does that make sense? It does, but I think you're actually still wearing the backwards blinders a bit um, because mm -hmm. video is, I will definitely agree with where you landed, which is video is part of the answer, not all the answer. But I would highlight the fact that anyone who talks in terms of synchronous communication and in, particu and in particular, the notion of a call mm is dealing with what we talked about in a previous podcast as operational debt, because the very concept of a call is a hundred years old and obsolete, predicated on the notion that bandwidth is scarce and expensive. And so the idea is I'm gonna save up everything important I have to tell Greg, mm. agree to call him, spend the least amount of time on that call as possible because the bandwidth is super expensive, tell him everything, listen to everything he has to say and hang up. And that's basically how we've conducted business for 100 years since the invention of the telephone. And it's obsolete because right now what most people are doing that are truly pioneering remote work is they will leave on the means for what you're calling synchronous, hmm. which now becomes just ambient communications. One really fantastic example, and I know we're not supposed to plug vendors or products here, but if you've looked at TeamFlow, one of the great things about TeamFlow is it creates the context, you know, the, the matrix, so to speak, of how you would interact with people virtually the same way you interact with people in real life. Mm. So, you know, you wander down the hall and you see that Jonna's door is open. So you go in and in this case, you're actually clicking and you see Jonna's happy face in a little box in the corner. <laughs> um, when you were talking about this whole notion of synchronous communication and video is not the answer, I would say video calls are not the answer. And obviously video by itself isn't the answer, but video in the context of something that provides a lot of those social cues, like whether Jonna is receptive to being interrupted, you know, what kind of work Jonna is working on, whether Jonna has around her the tools that she can share with you to answer the question you came to discuss. Those are all things that are in flux right now. The great thing about TeamFlow and other tools is they're allowing you to create that reality in virtual space. I am violently opposed to what you just said. I oh, do not good. believe I do not believe that anybody should be able to interrupt work that is click on a, a virtual well, door. Stop, stop. Don't you, you, you didn't hear what I said. What right. I said is I am sending an indication by, that, by, yeah. by the means that my door is open. 
yeah. that I am willing to have those serendipitous interactions that everybody says is the whole reason you have to be in person. Yeah. If I close my door, I'm then uninterruptible. This does vary according to the work that you do. There are jobs where being interrupted is a core activity. So let's just qualify that there's no absolute answers here. For most knowledge workers or for most white collar workers, you have tasks that you need to achieve, spreadsheets to fill out, computer systems to attend, ex reports to extract, you know, that type of stuff. You know, people used to walk up to your desk to interrupt you was a bad thing. It wasn't helping you get your work done. It was disrupting your work. But most people didn't think of that. They just thought that was part of the job. One of the things that you can do in hybrid work is you can change the way you work to much more effective work, like actually getting real work done rather than standing around chatting to people about the color of the doors in the toilet block because you're not being interrupted all the time. And I think that's one of the things that the tendency is for people to expect that the new tool looks a lot like the old tool, but getting people to look at a hybrid work is not as easy as doing it. Making a, a, a grand change is actually quite a difficult thing to do. Well, I'm going to push back on that because I don't think you're disagreeing with me at all. Mm. Uh, I would say that you're taking a very narrow view of work, which is subject matter expertise work. Certainly, if you're designing a data architecture, you don't want random people walking in and discussing, did you really talk about the color of the restroom? I mean, if you seriously had that conversation, then you had way too much time on your hands. Well, um, a lot of jobs do have a lot of time in their hands because you can but, look like you're busy by standing around chatting to people at your desk, right? I would argue that the vast majority of white collar work is not subject matter expertise. It's pulling together teams. It's checking in with people. And so for that, a certain degree of interruptibility is necessary. And even for subject matter expertise works, there's 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 points in the middle of your you know programming where you have to get up and walk over and say, hey, you know, did we make this assumption or that assumption? And you have to know when it's okay to do that so that you're not knocking somebody else off their game. Another question that people should be asking is if somebody like us is pontificating about what is or isn't uh, uh, appropriate for remote work or work in the office, ask mm. them ask them what kind of work they're envisioning. Because what you'll find is some people will be thinking about work as delegating tasks, uh, receiving updates, um, capturing requirements. And other people will be thinking about work as, you know, lockdown, filling out spreadsheets, creating, writing code, or the equivalent in a creative profession. Mm. And I think there are different models. They all exist and they're all real wor work. So one of the questions is, what is the mix of these types of work in your team? And that is a challenge too, because also uh, uh, not management expertise or leadership expertise is widely variant. You know, good managers are rare. There's no training programs. Like back in the 50s and 60s, if you were going to be a leader, you went and had training programs. They would literally send you away for days on end to teach you so that you would learn. Um, well, I'm going to interrupt now, Greg, yeah. since you handed me something that you didn't realize was a yeah. chance to plug Namertes. But we have an offering we call Agile Leadership Training that does not require days on end, but does deliver results in as uh -huh. little as two hours. And it really does. We bought it and consumed it before we actually brought it into our portfolio. So mm -hmm. I agree that leadership training is something that's been sorely neglected. We actually deliver that for IT teams. I used to find the corporate programs, people who were trained under various corporate programs were actually quite good. Or I used to feel that a lot of those corporate programs weren't horrible. They were often quite uh, aspirational, shall we say. 
and aspirational and i think i think overkill a bit because sometimes you walked away from the going that was a week that could have been done in an afternoon yes. but in the end in the end mm. it doesn't matter because whether you spent way too much time or just the right amount of time acquiring the skills was worth it but i do miss the days of when a manager was expected to have some training even if it was just time to reflect on what it meant to be a manager instead of congratulations you're now in charge of 10 people if some part of their personal lives is in your hands don't muck it up do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> that's kind of how it works today. Everybody's sort of expected to graduate high school or university with some talent for leadership. You know, it's like, that's not how it works. Um, yeah. And all I was thinking as you were saying that, and I have to, I have to laugh is you kids get off of my lawn because honestly, if we feel like it's bad now, wait till the millennials really hit leadership positions, which they're starting to do because they have an entirely different concept of how to interact and what is and is not appropriate. And I mean, there's jokes about it, memes and things like that. There is the reality that if you walk over to, you know, a millennial and say, you need to do X and I don't want you consulting with all your uh, entourage about the right way to do X because I need it done this way quickly. And I'm telling you how to do X and I have thought through mm. all the implications of doing X in any other way. The answer you're probably gonna get back is, okay, <laughs> boomer, <laughs> right? And it's like, A, I'm not a boomer and B, you're an idiot. and. <laughs> And it is a difficult one uh, because mm -hmm. people are used to being able to just say, do something. But this is, this is what I mean about self-awareness and knowing that the world has changed around you and understanding what does work. And I think for me, the thing about remote work is developing an understanding of what doesn't work. So if you're going to have a look at things like assuming that COVID is over is patently is probably false. There's a substantial chance that there'll be a variant that'll come out that might see us go back into lockdown. You can't, approach hybrid work assuming that things are going to go back to a normal state i think i agree with that assumption and i would love to highlight it and underline it and if you're listening you've listened this far thank you please pay attention to what greg just said but i want to pick at something you said because mm. i agree completely that all of biology tells us that we're just going to keep getting waves of these things mm. and that's the way it is and we should adapt but when you said go back into lockdown i suddenly thought to myself you know, I'm not sure that countries are willing to go into lockdown even when it's much more merited than it was even mm. for COVID. I think we may have actually, to use a biological term, inoculated ourselves against the concept of lockdown, yes. which could be disastrous. I agree that yeah. you should assume that there is no normal. So I think right. the points that I think we should not assume that we're going to go back to what we were. Absolutely. Because there was no normal back then. Hybrid work was already emerging. This transition has accelerated it you know we talked before about the great resignation and how a lot of people have reevaluated their lives especially older people in their late 50s and early 60s are saying why am i still here why am i not sitting on a yacht in the caribbean and that leaves you with the people at work who don't want to be there who, who may or may not be does that make sense there's there's weird things about the people that you've now got in your office maybe trapped and they may want to leave and so the tools that you give them so um, I was talking to somebody the other day and they're now apparently um, and people in interviews are saying, do you use Windows or a Mac? And if mm -hmm. they say we only use Windows, they say, thanks very much. I'm not interested in your job. And this has been a trend that's been underway. Basically, technologists and the creative folks uh, have been Mac or Unix bigots from day one. Before we get to some of the actual technical implications of everything we're saying here, I just want to highlight the fact that I believe that the majority of work in the future is there's going to be a lot more of that technical creative. And as Steve Jobs once famously said, 
The future doesn't belong to the artists or the engineers. It belongs to the people who have both capabilities. What that boils down to, if you're worried about endpoints in your organization, is your endpoints are increasingly going to be Mac because of these trends or whatever the next generation that is more Mac-like than Windows-like is. Yeah. If I was in a job interview today and then I would ask a question around expenses, because I often incur expenses as part of the work that I, I would most likely do, and if the employer says, you have to pay for them and then reimburse them, I'm not taking that job anymore. Yeah, no, of course not. Yeah. But let me let me go from the 50,000 foot view down to the technical view. Um, first, I'm gonna throw some data at you. Mm. Please feel free to question the data, but I think in this case, it's good. We just completed a research study that we're in the process of rolling out to, to our clients, uh, in which we found that a minimum of 25% of the workforce going forward, as in individuals working, will be working from home and could be as high as 40%. We could talk about how many days a week that is and whether that's hybrid work, but what that means from an IT perspective is that you can no longer assume that there are two discrete ways to get at your resources, that you're VPNing when you're working from home and you're coming in on the corporate WAN when you're in the office, which is a driver, again, for solutions like SDP and zero trust network architectures because you want a consistent user experience regardless of where that laptop is. And that's actually a huge shift from three years ago when it was perfectly okay to say, okay, 10% or 20% or even 30% of our workforces work from home, they're different. They have the work from home bit set so we can have a different exception for them in terms of accessing their resources. Now they are the same people and they're going back and forth to the office at some frequency And you're going to have to think about whether your architecture permits that seamlessly. There's a couple of things going on there. That idea that the majority of people will be remote away from the office or a a fixed location. A lot of people want to emphasize that you need face-to-face. I think that a lot of people who work today are used to -to face-to-face conversations and they build relationships based on face-to-face. It's not, I think over time that will reduce as people adapt to a new way of working, but it does mean that you need to get your team together and have meetups. And they're not actually work events, they're social events. Because what used to happen was people went to work and were trained to socialize with their colleagues. And I think over time, people will change. You'll start to see the face-to-face being a rare but unique event, which happens just so that there's a certain amount of attachment between people and the teams. You'll need more of them now and less of them in the future, I think is an aspect. And that's one of the things that I would speculate on. Please stop there and put that on your second thought on the shelf, because I want to agree as heartily as I can with that, underscore it for listeners. Greg is absolutely right. And give an example. I have a client that I'm working with that has some newly renovated facilities that are absolutely gorgeous in cities that are destination locations uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. They are at wit's end because they've recently, right before COVID, they fitted everything out to be hoteling facilities. And I'm in the midst of explaining to them, rip out all the nonsense you have for hoteling, but keep that expensive and glorious real estate, turn it into a giant playground for your employees when they get together once a quarter or once or twice a year for these you know, week-long team meetings, plan to spend money rotating your teams in, have everything under the sun from you know foosball tables to something a whole lot more high-tech to enable them to actually interact with each other and enjoy the wonderful venues that you've built for them and use those facilities not to to house hotelers, but to 
enable the interaction of your in-person interaction of your teams, you know, once or once or twice or three times a year and impress the heck out of your clients with your whizzy new technology. That's what facilities are going to need to be in the future. Well, it's interesting that back in the 40s and the 50s, a lot of companies actually owned dormitories, corporate dormitories. And I did not know that. Yes, it was very common for companies in that era to actually, for large companies, especially big companies. Right. And they would fly people in from, you know, all around the country for their training courses and to their management center. And part of that was actually a, what you would think of as a hotel today, a bit plain and simple, but still wasn't ugly or anything. And there would be training facilities and a, accommodation attached. Quite often they were close to the airport. So I'm thinking particularly of a, a hotel I stayed in and it had all of these conference facilities and then the dining facilities. And then it also had um, these dorm, what I would think of as dormitory style accommodation, single rooms, but lots and lots of them in a big. And it turns out when I asked the people, why is this building so, so unique? It turns out it was the Civil Service Academy for the UK government. And in the 40s and the 50s, well, after the war, when it was built, the idea was is that people would all congregate here for training. So if you wanted to go from this level to this level. Now, that, of course, would not be a popular decision today. The idea of a company owning real estate. Actually, be, you know. actually it would, because um, companies that own real estate can retrofit their real estate to be playgrounds and showpieces for the reasons that we just talked about. And the idea mm. that you don't actually have to commute because everybody hates commuting and we're out. You don't have to take that taxi or that subway as long as you, as long as you do it right with the right aesthetic sense so that, yes, it's a small room, but it's a beautiful oh. room with a nice view. Yeah, yeah, I know. All right. Com corporate aesthetic sense. <laughs> I, I, I'm fairly sure that, you know, yeah, I don't think that's that's the way it's going to happen. No, but it would be nice if it did. Anyway, mm. you had a second point you wanted to get to, and I interrupted. So please so, bring on the second so point. So I think the second thing that we're looking for for hybrid work is doing work differently. And what I mean by that is replacing old tasks with new tasks. And particularly here, what I'm looking for is AI and automation. For example, in IT deployment, we talk today about remote work having the ability to start using SaaS. You don't need to want to use stuff that's on-prem because it's the highest speed, fastest access. You can move SaaS services, which work the same whether you're at home, probably work better from home than they do from the office because you've got more bandwidth from home. You're not sharing a, an undersized internet connection most often. And when it comes to AI or automation, it becomes much easier to think about this or what I think of it is as the centaur. A centaur, of course, was a, a mythical beast. It was half human and half horse. And they would be the, all the benefits of the strength of a horse, the speed of a horse, the power of a horse, but with the mind of a human. So the power of the human mind and the leadership. And so when I'm looking at tools that they say, oh, we're going to do automation, I'm not looking at something that replaces people. I'm looking at something that's like a centaur. A human is there harnessing the power of AI to do something that a human can't do. A lot of people think that AIs are going to be superhuman. If, if I'm looking at an AI or an operational product, I'm looking at it to make humans superhuman. I should have a better tool or more data or a faster response time because there's some automation, whether it's AI or software or whatever, that's going to make you faster and better. What are some of the questions I should be asking about work of the future? One of the big questions is how is it going to be different from work today based on AI and automation? How should my environment adapt for that, whether it's virtual or physical. I think that's a hugely important thing and gets back to the main point that I said at the beginning is mm. if you're coming into this question with the rear view mirrors firmly strapped to your eyes and you're thinking work in 2024 is gonna look a lot like work in 2019, you're wrong. 
yeah. if you think that the office looks is going to look a lot like it looked in 2019, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you think that COVID is a one-off and we're never going to get these, this is a once in a generation experience, you're also wrong. So please look at all the assumptions you're bringing to the table mm -hmm. and really teach yourself to question them. But I do want to circle back to technology again, because after all, there is some component of technology and heavy strategy. One of the things to think about at a practical level is if you are doing some flavor of hybrid work or remote work, you're heavily dependent on collaboration tools and technologies, whatever they be. Uh, and you have to think about how you're securing those, not at an individual level, oh, I'm using Zoom and Zoom has security capabilities, but at a broader application portfolio level. For example, let's say you have a policy that says this type of data must not be released outside of the company. Well, that's great. Is your DLP policy enabled in every single tool in Slack, in WhatsApp, in Zoom, in Teams? How is it enforced? Is it enforced consistently? Mm. And chances are that you probably, that is not the case in your environment because the people that run collaboration simply assume that setting all the switches, the security switches are enough. And the people that are running cybersecurity aren't accustomed to thinking about the collaboration suite of tools as mission critical. Those are just some thoughts you know, or some questions to ask when you're looking at it. I do think the final phase that I would suggest here is hurdles and horrors. So <laughs> hurdles are things that can be solved. You can solve things like physical needs for remote work. One of the things that we talked about when we last talked about this somewhere, somebody wrote in and said, what happens if you're a young, youngish person with four kids at home under six years of age and the noise is incredible and you need to get out of the office? And I, I, th I, I do agree that there are some people who are going to be disadvantaged and even more so, people who are being disadvantaged are people who've got the least financial resources to solve it. Our houses aren't built to work from home. So you have to start thinking about remote working. Get your company to pay for a serviced office nearby where you can get out of the house. Or maybe we'll see the market respond. And we've seen some of this already with cabins that you can put in your back garden. And they're two meters by two meters and they've got a desk and that's about it. And I've also seen people build cabins that you can assemble inside your lounge room and they're even smaller one meter by one and a half meters literally you and a desk that's one meter wide but you know those are the sorts of changes that will come over time and i think we'll see housing adapt people will rebuild houses to have uh, spaces to work uh, in their houses whether it's a new space or a repurposed bedroom who knows Again, I think it's a brilliant idea that probably won't happen, but one of the things you expressed to me was, why is it that more people aren't buying pods where you have like a nice little, you know, soundproof, well-ventilated little thing that you can step into and leave the kids and the dogs and everything else outside and work very comfortably in your living room and pop right back out and minimize the commute. For some reason, people don't like that. So we'll just leave that aside. I think it's a great idea that will probably never take off for reasons I don't understand. But, hmm. you know, as we're coming to the end of this, I just want to highlight the bigger picture here. If you're rethinking, you're a technologist listening to all this and going, okay, so what are some of the, th the questions I should be asking? You should be rethinking how you secure remote workers or hybrid workers, because right now the idea that there's a bright, clear line between remote and on-prem is, is false. Mm. You should be thinking about how you secure, collaborate, yeah, how you provide networking and connectivity. You should be thinking about how you secure, uh, you know, collaboration tools. And the last point that Greg just raised in all of its dimensions is you should be rethinking every level of the purpose of your facilities, whether they're pods in somebody's house 
or whether they're your yeah. you know brand spanking new headquarters that you have to retrofit to be playgrounds and showpieces instead of hotel environments. I also think people who are working also have to take responsibility for creating change. So people like us need to be saying to our bosses, you need to give me this tools that I need. You need to help me in some way. You need to give me a laptop that doesn't suck, right? No, no more five-year-old windows on a two-bit $300 Dell laptop. It needs to be a tool that actually does the work. Don't make me come into the office and connect to the office, connect to the network one way and then connect to the office differently at home. That doesn't make sense going forward. You should be expecting to set your own personal goals. One of the traps that I think people have fallen into is to start working longer hours because it, the, it's right there. Well, you need to be have the self-awareness and the leadership skills for over yourself to not work more than eight hours a day, to walk away, to not answer the call, to not check your email. Maybe it means you have two telephones, one which is for the company and it sits on the desk, you know, that is the company phone. And then you have a personal phone, a smartphone that you carry around with you when you leave the house. Maybe that's what you have to do. And I would also argue from the point of view of a manager rather than a subject matter expert, um, keeping in mind at the beginning of this, I mentioned that I have about 30 years experience being in and managing remote teams. There's literally two kinds of people in the world when it comes to remote work. There are the mm -hmm. people who do exactly what you said, Greg, and will work themselves to death. And yeah. your job as a manager is to set and enforce workplace policies that don't allow that, you know, including calling people up or, you know, contacting people however you wish and saying, stop it, go away now. I don't want to see, I don't want to see any signs of work activity and making sure, and also enforcing that people ha take their vacation. But the other group are just as problematic. They're the people who have, who really need someone else right next to them to actually be motivated to work and these people will set up a good pretense of working they will respond mm. eagerly to every outreach because they're desperate for it but as soon as they hang up the phone turn off the video sign off the text or email they freeze because they don't know how to actually then go back to work and really do work and yeah. over time their productivity goes to zero and unfortunately, those people are just not set up for remote work. And it's a bit like being a very weak person in a career that requires lifting giant blocks. You're just <laughs> yeah. not going to make it work. Yeah, well, either you, think... you either go work out and get stronger or you find some other job. Yeah, I, I do. I just feel like in the past, a lot of people just relied on somebody to tell them what to do. And then they did that and they thought that was the job. And that's been changing for a very long time. That's not new that you have to find work and justify to assist, you have to step in and, and offer to help where needed. That doesn't change here, but you're also responsible for your job and your work. You don't just go to work and get your pay. And that that's an old idea, but it is a return to that idea. I think one last thing that I would like to be aware of, and this is a horror, is that a lot of companies are unable to rebudget for new spend. They might've been spending on camp, you had a budget for upgrading the campus network, or we're gonna send X number of people to conferences. People shouldn't go to conferences now. They should be having corporate events where team events where you get together in a location. So money that used to go to conference attendance or, you know, schmoozing with people or, or leadership sessions should be replaced with team building. And even if that's just getting together in a restaurant for lunch, everybody gets together for lunch and then they go to the office in the afternoon to discuss what's happening around them. And you just let it flow freely as everybody talks about the work they're on. It doesn't have to be this jam packed hour after hour of work, work, you know, it just can be a social event. The hardest part here is going to be 
the self-leadership that you have to explain, at least in my eyes, but also the leadership of management to, to adapt to this. And what I think is increasingly going to happen is that most people don't have that self-awareness. Would you think that's realistic? I don't want to be critical, but I do think that people, a lot of people don't have a, a high level of self-awareness of what's happening around them. I think that may or may not be true, and I'm not qualified to judge, but I want to come back to what you said, because I think that is both true and incredibly important, which is that if you're involved in setting the strategy for remote work, there's a handful of things you need to think about, which is what's what changes in the budget? Uh, and first of all, you should be asking people, how are our facilities budgets going to change? Because everything Greg and I have talked about is, you know, boils down to you're going to have to put a whole lot of new stuff in your facilities, whether you're turning them into playgrounds or dormitories or showpieces and rip out a bunch of stuff. So there's probably a one time conversion cost uh, and then a long term strategy of of rationalization of the number of facilities. Mm. You're also going to have to think about in your IT budget. You know, ripping out those campus networks or letting them expire and investing a lot more in cloud and yeah. SDP zero trust. And then you have to think about what Greg was just talking about here, which is, in a sense, if you think about the idea of spending less on going to conferences and more on going out to lunch in a very light way, yeah. you're, what, you, what you're really talking about is the company is picking up costs that had been previously passed to the employee. Because yes. the employee used to spend X many thousand dollars a year commuting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now you're saying, no, the employee is going to pick up internal internal travel costs are going to go up. So yay, if you're in the hotel business or in the transportation business, hurrah, hurrah. Uh, <laughs> external travel costs may go down. You have to be basically aware that there's going to be one-time one spikes in a couple of key areas and then long-term trends that are going to vastly change your budget. If I had to say why hybrid work doesn't work, it's that flexibility issue. How flexible can you be? How flexible can you be around your decision making? How quickly can you adopt new tools? How rapidly can you adapt to the new processes of working? Keep in mind that uh, we're now seeing people, say, from countries like new Nigeria doing remote work. You've got new competition at the same time. They don't have the same cost base that you do. If you've got a house that's 10 times your, your salary, and there's somebody in Nigeria <laughs> who will work for one-tenth of what you do, you might want to be asking yourself, am I really that employable? There are people willing to come at you. That's one of the horrors. Well, and I'm going to take that plug that you just gave me and highlight, if you were listening to this, got all the way to the end and said, gee, my management leadership skills really do need an upgrade, do contact Namurdis. And on that note, thanks for listening to Heavy Strategy. Hopefully we've raised some questions and put some uh, maybe giving you a framework to develop your own answers around this. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends. It'd be really helpful to get some more people joining us uh, and contributing. If you've got any feedback, don't hesitate to send it to packetpushes.net slash fu. Send us your follow-up, ask questions, give us some ideas for future shows. If there's something you'd like to hear us discuss in this format, we'd love to hear from you.